you have a Bible, please turn with me to John's first letter, what we call 1 John. If you're using those black pew Bibles, you can find 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 on page 959. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27 will be our text of scripture that we'll focus on here in this sermon. Before I read the passage, I plan to use an illustration throughout the sermon that comes from the year 1985. Something big happened in 1985. Yes, I was born, but I'm not talking about my birth. New Coke was introduced. The classic original Coca-Cola recipe after years of taste tests in the early 80s when Pepsi was on the rise, gaining popularity by its campaigns to the younger generation, Coke got scared. And the new CEO that was just appointed in the early 80s decided what Coke really needed was something new. And that's why they called it New Coke. And the taste tests showed that it was superior to Pepsi and original Coke in all of their experiments and all of their blind tests. So they changed the entire distribution of Coca-Cola from the old Coke. They wouldn't sell it anymore to new Coke. If you understand this story, it will be a silly illustration, but it'll be helpful to understand what's going on here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and following. The old classic, the authentic Christ versus the new Christ, the new recipe for the Christian life. That's the contrast being made here in 1 John 2, 18 and following. Let's read the text and then let's walk through it together and then I'll hopefully explain throughout the sermon how in ways new Coke versus Coke classic will help us today. Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. 
But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught to you, abide in him. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen? So we want to abide in this eternal word that lasts forever. And this passage is dense. Brothers and sisters, guests and visitors, what I just read to you has the foundations of what we call Trinitarian theology proper. It teaches us about the Holy Spirit as the anointed one, which I'll argue in just a minute. By confessing the Son to the glory and in the union and communion with the Father, the Trinity, is here in our text. This passage teaches us about some kind of apostasy and false teaching. It's relevant for how to have a healthy local church. It, I think, has implications for what we call ecclesiology or church membership. What's a church? What does it mean to be in the church, of the church, us versus them, inside versus outside? This passage teaches us about pneumatology. That's the fancy word for saying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and your personal discipleship. Some of you might end up reading this text and be like, shoot, I don't need to come back to church next week. It says, if you've got the Holy Spirit, you don't need a teacher. Let's fire Pastor Phil or let's just leave the church. What are we doing here? I mean, if you want to walk out now, I wouldn't recommend it and you'll see why, but This passage has all kinds of issues, and I haven't even touched the big ones. The last hour, what we call the end times, eschatology, the Antichrist. This is the first of five places where the Bible talks about the Antichrist. And today, congratulations, you will, if you follow along and pay attention, read every single one of those passages with me in this sermon. So, we need something to set our gaze. We need a big idea. And here it is. In one sentence, this passage, although robust and deep and could be a whole sermon series in its own, talking about all of these various doctrines and teachings, I'd like to summarize it this way. Those who confess the classic Christ, they commune with the Father by the anointing of the Holy Spirit And they will continue with Christ and his church forever. It's a little bit of a longer sentence, but it is a dense passage. So I'll say it one more time. Those who confess the classic Christ commune with the Father by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And they will continue with Christ and his church forever. I think that's the summary way to state what this passage is teaching. So let's apply it. The sermon outline will give you three commandments, three encouragements, three suggestions for how we should live on the basis of this single sentence. Confess, commune, and continue. Confess. We'll begin with confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Secondly, the next part of this outline in the sermon will be on the basis of our confessing that Jesus is the Christ, let's commune with the Father, by the Spirit, in this Trinitarian participation fellowship. Third, continue, abide, remain, stay. Don't move on. Don't get hyped up on the newest and latest and greatest, the old school classic Christian gospel. There you go. That's the quick summary of where we're headed. So let's dive in. Point one, encouragement number one, confess the Christ. 
Now, on the screen behind me, I'm hoping that you will see what is a quick, simple summary of the way this passage is organized, and the letter chi in Greek makes an X. Chi, asm, is the word I'm about to teach you, chi, meaning that this passage makes like an X shape or half of an X. And so what you'll see is first, the bookends of this text, notice that the way 18 and then 28 are bookended by the phrase children, children, and then they're contrasted with the Antichrist's coming and the Son of God, the coming of Jesus Christ. So that's layer number one on the outside. The next layer in is 220 to 227. The only two times this word appears in the entire Bible is 220 and 227. Do you think that these might be paralleling each other? Well, I certainly think so. So now we're getting an even stronger case that there's this mirrored-like chiasm parallelism in this text. And the reason we're doing this is it's going to take us to the center, the like middle of the Oreo cookie, the good stuff. And when we get there, that'll tell us here's what he's really saying in this paragraph. So next layer in. 221 and 226. Notice the repetition and the parallel between I write these things to you and then the first half of this is because you know the truth and then the second half is I write these things to you because I don't want them to deceive you from the truth and therefore they create our third layer in on the parallel. Then we then move to the antichrist versus the promise. This is the antichrist, the one who denies the son and then this is the promise eternal life. Finally, we've made it to the center, and then you can see the whole thing. Here's our final slide. Right in the middle of this chiasm is verse 23. Verse 23 says, in its fullness, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Therefore, I would suggest to you by literary design, this text of Scripture's primary point John wrote this paragraph in such a way to tell you that I want you to confess the Christ. So that's one way to make the point and to show you that I am not coming up with this big idea or this first point from Phil's thoughts from this last, last week. You know, guys, I was reading the paper, I was scrolling on the internet and thought, let's have a sermon about confessing the Christ. No, it's the, the center of this text. It's central to being a Christian. It should be the center of this church. It's the center of this passage, I would argue. So, first, as we think about this idea confessing the Christ, uh, let's go back to the basics. What's the Christ? Now, the simple thing to just clear out of the way, it's not Jesus' last name, Jesus the Christ. Christ is a title, like Joe Biden is his personal name, but his title is the President of the United States. Or his title is the commander-in-chief. Joe Biden is his name. Jesus is his name. But he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. And in fact, the word Christ most often has actually the word the in front of it a lot of times. So it's Jesus, the Christ, the commander-in-chief, to use that as an analogy. So Christ is the word from Hebrew that's Messiah, and it means an anointed one. It's a title of a noun, and prophets, priests, and kings would have been the category of Old Testament anointed ones. So those are the basics that you need to get into your head when you think, we're confessing in this text, we're being encouraged to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, which means anointed one, which then means Jesus 
is a human. Okay, this is the part that's actually the controversy that he's addressing in this paragraph. This is why it's part of the center. The promised Messiah in the Old Testament, prior to getting to the New Testament, would be one who would usher in a new empire, a new regime, a new kingdom. And he would either be somewhat prophet-like or somewhat priest-like, but he would especially be a king in the line of David, a human born out of the lineage of an actual historical family through David and then his son Solomon and then the subsequent sons from there. There is actually more written about King David in ancient history than almost any other historical figure in the history of literature. Fascinating, huh? Yeah, that's my point, is that this is rooted in human history from a real family and that God promised that this family would one day have a king, but not just any king, a king, as John read for us earlier, that would be God's son. He would be equal with God. He would be God in human flesh. That idea, it blows the mind, but it changes the heart. And it is what we're confessing when we say Jesus is the Christ, a human who is equal with God, which is why verse 23 says, if you confess that Jesus is the Christ, who do you have? You have the Father. This confession, this lifestyle that flows out of this confession means that you're having communion with the Father, which is point two. But for now, notice, confess the Christ, that Jesus is both God and man. And in case you're not seeing the controversy here because you're so familiar with this language, flip your Bible over to 1 John 4. Look at verses 2 and 3, and this is the second time you're going to read a passage that uses the word antichrist. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Do you see how closely associated this passage is with our current text, 1 John chapter 2? Antichrist appears, Antichrist appears. Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Christ. So we should, I think, interpret them in light of each other. And notice the emphasis here on anyone who confesses that Jesus, the Christ, is in the flesh. You have to, if you're going to be a classic Christian, an authentic, original, orthodox Christian, confess that Jesus is fully, 100% from God, equal with God, and his power, authority, and every word he speaks is what God himself would speak, but yet at the same time is married in union forever to human flesh. God became a human. And God remained a human. That's the part that I believe the Bible scholars on 1 John need to pay attention to. It's not just that he became human or that there was a spirit inside of a human that was called the Christ. All kinds of people have made, I'm a Messiah claim 
but none of them rose again from the dead and now reigns and rules in heaven. You guys can think of anybody else? Can you actually even just think, hypothetically, are there other religions that teach this kind of narrative of a spirit from heaven indwelling a baby, growing to a full man, dying on a cross for a, a sin, a, a lifestyle that didn't deserve it, for crimes he didn't commit, buried in the ground, appeared to hundreds of people in public eyewitness testimony. They could still see the scars in, their, in his hands from him being nailed to the cross. And then people witnessed with their own eyes, he ascended into heaven in human flesh. And he promised that he would return again in that same bodily human flesh form. This is what troubles people today. It's what troubles people then. Because it says there is a human that's king. And it's not going to be the president of the United States. And it's not going to be some world ruler that's going to usher in peace, prosperity, human flourishing. It's Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, ruler, fully human, fully God. Turn once more in your Bibles to 2 John chapter 2, verse 7, so you can see the last and final text that uses the word antichrist. Verse 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Antichrist is the word to be against, against the Messiah. You're against the true Messiah by creating an alternative Messiah. And this has happened for 2,000 years. It's happening today in all kinds of what we would call liberally, liberal theological churches, institutions. It's happened throughout the history of the church. It was happening in John's day. People claimed that there is a spirit of the Christ, but not a flesh and bones of the Christ. There's names for this. Gnosticism is one of the names. The docetic heresy is another one. You don't need to remember those things necessarily, but by all means, there you go. Docetism, Gnosticism. The point is this, to be a Christian, to be a classic Christian, an authentic one, one must confess that Jesus Christ is right now wearing human flesh. The Christ is not just a spirit. The Christ is part of creation and will remain a part of creation forever. So, think of it like this. 1985, the CEO of Coke said, oh no, Pepsi's gaining on us. We need a new recipe. In a similar, but in a much more devastating and profound way, there were people within the church that started to hear about these different teachings about a higher spiritual power. And so, as the story goes, in the old Coke versus new Coke controversy, come to find out what they did was swap out the cane sugar that was in Coke Classic and replace it with high fructose corn syrup. It was sweeter. And so it went down a little nicer on the tongue. And so this, I think, provides a helpful parallel for us. There will be false Christs and antichrists and teachers out there that will say something that will sound sweet at first, but after a while, 
It doesn't last. It doesn't sit well. It won't remain. And you should not choose new Gnostic heresies that then forsake the classic, basic confessions of the Christian faith. And so, church, I think we need to think through this as it relates to us in this day. First, if you're a guest or visitor here today, I'm glad you're here. We're like right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And if you're trying to explore, well, what's Christianity about? Here's, here's a good place to start. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that the resurrected Lord is Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Your heart will be changed because this confession we're talking about is not merely like a parrot on a perch repeating words after someone or a little child that's three or four years old just repeating after mom. That's not the kind of confession we're talking about. We're talking about a life that's been transformed by this message of, wow, so when I die, I will stay dead if I have faith and union and communion with God. Brothers and sisters, I hope you understand that our only hope in life and death is Christ alone. Christ alone. This is the hope that we confess. It's the reason we sang this song earlier in the service. It's the reason we want to center our worship services around the classic, the recipe that lasts for ages, for eternity. So orthodoxy is correct, straight faith. Some of you have maybe been to the or, or, uh, orthodentist, you know, like the straightening of one's teeth. Ortho is about straight. Doxy is about doctrine. Do you have correct doctrine? It starts here. It starts with confessing the right things about Jesus. If you get Jesus right, you're going to get God right. You're going to get sin right, as we saw earlier in chapter 1. You can't confess Jesus is the Christ and not also at the same time confess, I'm a sinner then. I actually have been living like I'm my own master and Lord, but if he's actually the master and Lord, I should obey him. And so this is what we've been covering so far in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to this section. In fact, last week's message, don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. He's not quickly transitioning to like, all right, now all I care about is what you believe and what you think. The two are married together. They, they are the, the two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate what you believe with how you live. Belief and behavior. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy, as it's sometimes said. Your straight beliefs will lead to straight practices lay, living in line with God and his word. But if you have incorrect, crooked, wayward beliefs, you will have crooked behavior. They go hand in hand together. So this is why at Embassy Church, we have a statement of faith that summarizes what we believe. But we don't just say, guys, do you believe those things? Did you pass the Bible test? We also encourage every church member to say, and here's what believing those things looks like in our church covenant. Commitments of belief and covenant promises of how we live together because the two are inseparable just like Jesus' own godness and humanity are inseparable. So should your faith produce repentance, a new life. Your confession of Jesus as Lord should kind of look like it. So realize that confession is not merely repeating a prayer or saying a few words or doing a, a water ritual at some point in your life at a church. 
that we call baptism. If right now you're living in sin unrepentantly, repeatedly, boldly, not struggling, not hating sin and falling up and down, boldly living against Jesus Christ's teaching, you might say, but I believe he's the Savior. He's God and man. But your life, it is denying Christ. You are living as an anti-Christ. So we could come at it from either angle. We could listen to your doctrine, or we could just look at your life. Either way, we're going to see, is Jesus the Christ? Is he your Lord? Are you submitting to him? And so we don't have to pick and choose. We can just live life together. And the things you say and the things you believe, they'll come out of your mouth. And then the way that you live, that'll also be pretty public and obvious. And that's what we mean. Confess the Christ. Correct doctrine leads to faithful devotion to Jesus. So I make no apologies for being doctrinally emphatic in my teaching of Scripture. I think it's fantastic that a church would care about the Scriptures that would come and gather around God's word. We need to be reminded of who Jesus is and be taught doctrine and confess that Jesus is the Christ because it, it has an effect on our walk. So let's recap here. Those who confess the classic faithful message of Jesus Christ, who he is, his person, they will commune with the Father by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So confess the Christ so that you can commune with the Father by the Holy Spirit. That'll be our second point. After establishing that Christ means anointed one, the Messiah, I would love to point out a little fun pun. Check it out. Verse 20 to 27 has an an interesting, unique pun. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who's a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. It's eternal life. And I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him, it abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it, ha- just as it has taught you, abide in him. The pun here is the word anointing that I said only appears two times in the entire Bible in terms of the Greek New Testament. So verse 20 and verse 27. You have been anointed, verse 27. The anointing that you have received. So did you catch the pun? The anointing that you've received by confessing that he is the anointed one. There's a play on words here. If you confess that Jesus is the anointed one, it's only because you've been anointed by the Holy One. This is, I think, baked with deep Old Testament word pictures. This charisma word in Greek that's translated anointed one, I think is referring to the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And its Old Testament background is heavily in the book of Acts talking about God's presence coming into the tabernacle temple. So in case you just need a fresh recap, in the Old Testament before Jesus comes onto the scene, God was located in a tent and then eventually a building. The tent was called a tabernacle and the tent was called the temple. Sorry. The tent was called the tabernacle and then the building was called the temple. This was the place where God's presence would dwell and his spirit would be in this holy of holy chambers. And this was what we would call a type or a shadow. It wasn't like the plan all along. This was a, I'm preparing you for the plan. So then fast forward, Jesus himself comes onto the scene. He's born of a virgin. He lives in the world and he says, I, I am the fulfillment and the substance of that picture. That was a picture. I'm the real thing. God was trying to prepare you for what it would look like for God's presence to live on the earth. And it wasn't going to stay in a tent or a building. Its plan was to be in a human, to fully embody a human by the power of the Spirit. Jesus is the first of that human race. He was the fullness of God on the earth, the fullness of God's presence. He was the temple. And many people were kind of puzzled by this. They, they didn't quite get it at first. But after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, when God then poured out his spirit on the church, they then realized, oh, that's what Jesus meant. When he kept referring to himself as this building tabernacle temple. And so realize that now you live in the last hour. You live in the time between the ascension of Christ and the bodily return of Christ. You live in the time of the last days. You live in an era where God's spirit can come in you, can change you. Throughout the New Testament, it's very clear that you cannot confess the Christ unless the spirit of God is working inside of you. It's evidence that God's spirit is alive and at work because you're confessing the Christ. I believe I think this is true. What Phil is saying up there, that is ultimate reality of the entire universe. I believe that. You could not say those words. I mean, you could say them insincerely, but you cannot say them authentically without the fullness of the Spirit working in your heart. And that then, as I said, leads to repentance and faith. And so we get to commune by the power of the Holy Spirit through the God-man Jesus Christ, who's at the ascended right hand of the Father, and we can pray to the Father on the basis of our mediator, which is what he's talking about here. You don't need a new mediator. You don't need a new revelation. You don't need new Coke. There's no need for a new recipe. The old thing is really still good. And that's why he's saying to them, you don't need a teacher. This is not the time to fire the pastor and get rid of the elders. We didn't get to this point in the sermon series and be like, oh, they've been holding out on us, but apparently we don't actually need to be taught. It doesn't make much sense, does it, that John's writing these things, and he says this twice, I'm writing these things because you need to be reminded and because there's deceivers. Oh, and by the way, you don't even need to read this. You don't need to be taught. In fact, just go home and do whatever you want and just be guided by the Spirit. This is not orthodox, classic Christianity. Classic Christianity, the true Christianity, has churches. Teachers, pastors, because we need taught, we need reminded, we need Christ's spirit in us through the preaching of the gospel, which we need to receive daily, hourly, 
minute by minute, moment by moment. I think Don Carson's right, by the way, that he's probably referring to Jeremiah 31 when he says, you don't need a teacher. So go back and write a little note. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, starts a paragraph where the prophet said, there will be a day when the Spirit of God in the new covenant comes, and you're not going to need teachers to tell neighbors, hey, you should have a relationship with God. In fact, everybody in this new covenant community will know God. So there won't be the need for explaining somebody who God is when it's like, I know who God is. I just need to be reminded of it, which is what he's doing here. He's saying, I'm writing these things not because you don't know the truth. You know the truth. I'm reminding you things you already know. And that's what I'm trying to hopefully do to you for those of you that are Christians, for those of you that have repented of sin and put your faith in Jesus. The simple point here is that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher that is used through the preaching of God's word in normal, healthy, local church gatherings. And he leads us to the truth through that exercise. You need teachers, but those teachers should be spirit-filled, abiding in God's word teachers, not, hey guys, what do you guys wanna talk about today? Well, I woke up this morning, I got a really good word from the Lord today. Let's talk about that. That kind of church, it's gonna be hit or miss Sunday after Sunday. That's not a spirit-led church. Any spirit-led church, charisma is not how well does the person speak and talk and keep my attention and help me not fall asleep. It's are they abiding in the scriptures? Are they saturated with Jesus? Do they love the gospel? Center your life and your community and your friendships around people like that. And it's not just Phil or elders. Like We believe here at this church that all of you, who have repented of sin and confessed that Jesus is the Christ, you have the spirit in you. You have the temple of God here on earth through your human body. And you can then be little priests on the earth, which is what he's trying to, I think, remind all of these church members about. Reminding them not of something new, not a new recipe, not a new gospel, but something old, something that they heard from the beginning. Did you see that line in verse 24? Let what you've heard from the beginning, the old truth, the old gospel, may that abide in you. In fact, I think the best spirit-filled teachers, they love to talk about old stuff you've heard before. They're not quickly enamored with shiny or new. They don't quickly touch the sugary, quick, latest book and then say, ooh, let's go that direction for a 50-week sermon series on critical race theory for the next year. No. Let's talk about Christ and the gospel and center ourselves abiding in the word. So we commune with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit as we abide in the scriptures together. So confess the Christ, commune with the Father through the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures that are ultimately all about Jesus Christ, which will be the litmus test, as he'll say in chapter 4. How do you know that it's a true spirit of Jesus Christ? How do you know it's a true Holy Spirit, part of the triune God? Makes much of Jesus. Makes much of him in his full life, death, and ministry that he is in the flesh. Third and finally, if we confess to Christ, this allows us to commune with the Father by the anointing of the Spirit. We then need to realize that here John teaches us that true, authentic, classic Christian faith teaches that you'll continue with Christ forever in his church, either until he comes, as verse 28 says, the coming of Jesus, or until you die. 
And then he raises you from the dead and remakes the whole earth, including your dead body, into a new resurrected and eternal body, which is what this promise is all about. This is the promise, eternal life. Dying, but being raised just like Jesus was raised. The reason he's still in human flesh and the reason you can have hope in your human flesh, even though it gets older and slowly fades and decays, the outer body wastes away slowly and surely. Eat as much greeny spinach as you want. You can't beat death, friends. So then what's your solution in death? Christ, the resurrected one, the one who conquered death. So confess him, believe him, put your whole life around this hope, and then it's going to start trickling down into how you spend your money, how then you make sense of your time, the relationships that you start prioritizing, the way that you interact with your friends and family. Continue with Christ and his church. Let's key in on verse 18 and 19 for a second. John says that children, it's the last hour, and you've heard about Antichrist and his coming so now, we see many antichrists that have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. First, verse 18, I will not be able to have enough time right now to explain to you all that could and should be said about the coming of the antichrist. But notice, there's antichrist, singular, and antichrists, plural. In sum, I think you should understand that there will more than likely be an antichrist, like in the future, that opposes Jesus as the like ultimate giant, this is a beast from Revelation 13, for example. But at the same time, there are people that are spirit and filled with the lies and the deceit of that spiritual being in human flesh right now. And they're in churches and they're around the world back in First John's day and that they are around in our day as well. So children, it's, it's the last hour, and this is more than likely a reference to the book of Daniel when there would be deceivers who would be false prophets, and it's referring to the time that I mentioned between the ascension of Christ and the return of Jesus. We're in that time, and the reason we know is because the book of Daniel's prophecy that there would be people going around speaking blasphemous words against God and his anointed Messiah is evidence that, oh, clearly Jesus must be the Christ because the prophecies of Daniel and the words of Jesus in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 are coming true. That's actually evidence that, guys, this, this thing is true. This is the real deal. This is the classic Christian gospel from Old to New Testament, the consistent teaching of who God is. But verse 19 says there were some who rejected the classic. They were not of us. They were not true Christians. How do we know? Because true Christians, if they would have been real, they would have continued. But they did not continue. They went out. And that made it plain that they were not of us. Jesus himself taught this very plainly and clearly. It's throughout much of the New Testament writings. True Christians are not flash in the pan, not quick, don't have just a, a, an spiritual experience over a weekend and then like go back to their or, ordinary normal lives. This confession of Christ and this communing with the Father, it continues forever. 
And primarily, it should happen, as verses 18 and 19 say, in communities of people. Churches is what we call them throughout the Bible. And I think you should understand that continuing with Christ in his church is a privilege of the gospel. Most likely, he's referring here to these false teachers that are also brought up in 3 John. And then you notice that he's talking about how there were those that... um, He's warning them of in verse 26, I'm writing these things to you so that those who try to deceive you. So we're not just talking about, hey, there's a few church members and they apostatized and left the church. I think that that's related to this text, but that's not his primary point. It's not somebody that says, hey, I'm done with Jesus and I'm leaving. It's somebody that's saying, I'm done with classic Jesus. I want new Coke Jesus. I want a different spin on the gospel. And not only are they believing those things, they're trying to infiltrate the church. They're trying to convince other people about this new way. So let me give a modern recent example. I'm gathering with these group of pastor friends. We do this once a month. We'll do it again this coming Tuesday. We read books together because we're nerds and then we pray. So we're gathering together and we're talking about this one church and this one pastor telling a story that he has this big issue that they're dealing with and it's these two people. And they have intentionally joined their church, not officially as members, but like they joined the gatherings and they started getting real friendly and then slowly and secretly teaching people false teaching from some false prosperity teaching person over in Korea. And he said that as he got to know the whole situation, they were, they were slick, they, they were secretive, They had a plan. They had specific strategies for how to come and infiltrate the church. So we're not talking about just the fact that they did deny the historic confession of Jesus, which they did. But that they're going around trying to convince other people to believe something alternatively. And they did it by being friendly. This sort of thing is around today. Antichrists. So we should be discerning. I don't mean that all of you should be like, whoa, who's sitting next to me? The reason we do membership and the reason that we have a statement of faith and a church covenant and get to know one another and then not just throw anybody up on the stage and say, hey, why don't you just teach us? Is because we do want to be discerning. But do you see that there's two sides to this? We can't be too naive because crafting, cunning, deception can be so warm and welcoming and warm-hearted that you don't realize somebody's trying to deceive you. On the other hand, I hope we're a warm and welcoming church. If this is your first time here, I hope it's not like, are they the Antichrist? So church, please hold both of these tensions every single time you're with people. Be open and honest. Keep things out into the light. Continue in faithful fellowship of God's church in this sort of way. One of my favorite parts of this illustration I began the sermon with, I'll close, is... The new Coke taste test had a massive flaw and blunder. You can read about this in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, if you're interested in more of this story. But as it's been reported, what happened is that the CEO and the team of people that were doing all of these experiments before releasing this massive change to their product, this best-selling global empire of a beverage, by the way, Coca-Cola has dominated the beverage industry for a century now. They made such a huge change on the basis of a flaw of an experiment. 
They would drink small little sips, think like shot glass amounts, think communion cups, little bits. And then they would taste the quick hit of sugar. And then they'd say, I like it. And then they'd compare it to Pepsi or they'd compare it to the old Coke and they'd say, I like it better. But what they didn't realize as later studies revealed is that people did not prefer it for the long haul. That they didn't call it Coke classic for home. It was more of like, it tasted good. Actually, I liked it better. And they based their entire change of their company on that. But then when they rolled out the product, if you know the story, it's fantastically wild. People were up in arms. They were doing campaigns, dumping out new Coke in sewers with video cameras and sending them to the Coke headquarters saying, bring us back old Coke. It's wild. You can watch it on YouTube. You can listen to podcasts about it. You can read about it in books. There's an entire documentary on this story. Do you guys get the point? The classic, the true, the authentic gospel, it's not just a quick little sip and it tastes good for a little bit, and then it just kind of sits for a while, and you're like, nah, I don't actually want that. It abides. It remains. It nourishes. It satisfies. Have you ever been to church? I hope maybe even this one. I've had this experience. I come to church. I confess Christ. I worship. And I just have this sense of love abiding in my heart for hours, sometimes even for days. My hope and prayer is that as you continue in the fellowship of this church, especially for those of you that are committed covenant members, committed to confessing Christ, proclaiming the gospel, that there'll be an abiding, remaining steadfastness to your faith. And so I hope that we will not give way to new theologies. Let's go, as the old Coke campaign used to say, to the real thing, Jesus Christ. Son of God, fully God, fully man, Savior of the world, dying on the cross for our sins. In fact, I'm going to pray, and we're going to confess publicly together the basic summary of Christ from our statement of faith. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, thank you for your Son, and we want to just rejoice and delight in the fact that he has come, the Son of God second person of the Trinity has fulfilled the mission. He was sent and he was successful. We thank you for his atoning death. We thank you for his victorious resurrection. We thank you for his triumphant ascension. And we are now dependent on your Holy Spirit to guide us to the truth. And so we thank you that we have one supreme teacher and it's not Pastor Phil. It's the Spirit of God working through me. It's the Spirit of God working through the Scriptures as we study the Scriptures on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays in Bible studies and community groups and Friday nights with ladies and Saturday morning with men getting together. Lord, we pray that your Scriptures, we would abide in them this week. We would sense the satisfying fulfillment of the health and the goodness of your Word. So we want to pray that you will use this sermon to bear good fruit in our lives. And we want to also pray that if there's anyone here today, that this will be the first time that they need to turn away from their, future, or their, their past ways of thinking and turn to a, a new future hope in Christ, that they would confess sincerely these words that we're about to read. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.